Futurists are looking at the 21st century. And all myths that are uh, authentic maintain a kind of dreamlike, surreal quality. Computers are taking over now. By the year 2001, man will travel about in pneumatic people tubes. It's time once again to step into the future. I had, if you ever was a devil, bought that any harness, better burn your man. I hear you, mama. Hey, hey. Ken, Deb, and Peter had just read the reply from the mysterious entity known as 2109 to David Welch, an investigator with the Society for Psychical Research. And Welch had confirmed that although 2109's answers were nonspecific, they had directly addressed every one of the questions Welch had asked in his tightly controlled experiment, and the answers even appeared in the same order as the questions. It was enough positive news to inspire rejoicing among the three friends. They'd finally succeeded in proving, to the satisfaction of SPR, that none of them were hoaxing these mysterious events. When they finished dancing around the room in celebration and utter relief, they gathered again at the BBC Micro to reread 2109's reply. The message unsettled them, as missives from the strange entity often did. It seemed to imply omniscience, or something close to it, an ability to see down every path of history, even at the level of individual, ordinary lives. The realization set in that whatever 2109 was, wherever or whenever it was from, it could only be described as an alien intelligence. And they'd been communicating with it all these months. And now that they'd conveyed 2109's response to Welch, an addendum had appeared at the bottom of the screen. One they couldn't make sense of. 2109-213,978,8J colon irrecoverable. State. Reason for your pretext. State. What prerequisite you intend. State. Logical explanation for intrusive behavior upon 1985. This is not your concern. Request com.link 62j colon plot dot chan dot bracket 452.95 bracket request answer immediately fed awaiting reasons for delay ken webster stared at that strange jumble of information for a long time he considered so many possible explanations for the bizarre events that had been plaguing his home for nearly an entire year from a sophisticated hoax to ghosts and poltergeists to time travelers to inadvertent and uncontrollable psychic projections of fantasy originating in his own mind or in Deb's. Now, staring at what appeared to be an intercepted message from some sort of command, every potential framework by which he might explain these events to himself and to other people fell apart. There was no way to explain, no way to rationalize the idea that he was part of an experiment being conducted by an alien intelligence that was under the command of and answerable to a still superior authority. 
How far up did the chain of powers go? And how far down the chain was humanity, the most intelligent species on this planet? He stopped trying to figure it out that night. He surrendered to the fact that it was all beyond him. Maybe it was beyond the capacity of any human to comprehend. This is Future Saint of a New Era. I'm Libby Grant. The following Sunday, the 29th of September, 1985, Dave Welch called and asked if he could pose a few more questions to 2109. Before, Ken had been thoroughly resistant to both 2109 and most of the researchers at SPR, whom he referred to behind their backs as the Psychobillies. But now, a kind of fatalism had come over him. Maybe this was what he was supposed to do. Facilitate communication between an alien intelligence from the future and the researchers who might be able to glean some real-world, present-day meaning from 2109's experiment. He asked 2109 if it was willing to entertain Welch's questions a little more, and it agreed. So Ken agreed, too. What else could he do? He passed along Welch's questions to the entity. 2109, could you solve these for David, please? I think that the largest prime number we know is 2 to the power of 216091-1. Can you give a larger prime number of the same type and a larger prime number of a different composition? Fermat thought that the equation x to the n equals y to the n plus 2 to the n could not be written if x, y, z, and n are all whole numbers and n is at least 3. Can you give a solution or when we will prove that the answer is possible? Ken. Now, David Welch was asking about a mathematical concept called Fermat's Last Theorem, which defied solution since the 17th century when the mathematician Pierre de Fermat proposed it as a puzzle until 1993 when it was finally solved. Ken Webster does note in his book The Vertical Plane that in the message he sent to 2109, there is an error in Fermat's Last Theorem, though he doesn't say what it is and frankly, I couldn't tell you. Math is so far beyond me, sometimes I'm amazed I can count to 10. But Ken does note in his book that the error in the theorem he transmitted to 2109 was copied from Dave. Did Dave Welch intentionally hide an error in the theorem to try to bait 2109, or did Dave just get it wrong? We don't know. Either way, the reply came quickly from 2109. Dave. Yes, both questions can be answered. One directly, the other requires an understanding of a new conversion formula. Before we tell you, do you swear to grant us our wish? They're playing with us, Ken said, the cunning bastards. I'll bet Dave says yes, Deb said. Ring him and tell him what 2109 said. He did tell us to call right away if it answered. Ken did call Welch and relayed 2109's request to grant it a wish. He'd expected Welch, a skeptic not given to irrationality, to play along and call 2109's bluff. To his surprise, Welch sounded distinctly cautious as he formulated a reply to the entity. Here's the message Ken sent on David Welch's behalf. If it be in our power to do so and that we do not lose our minds or souls or bodies to you... And here's how 2109 answered. Then let the man who is willing to lose these step forward. 
Ken tried to intervene on Welch's behalf, imploring 2109 to be reasonable, but the entity wouldn't budge. To lose your soul is to lose all, but surely this would not bother David. Call our bluff! Ken called Welch again, filling him in on 2109's taunting answers. Once more, Ken expected Welch's rationality to prevail, but the psychobilly refused to commit to granting anything to 2109. He's a bit superstitious for a skeptic, isn't he? Ken said. Deb shrugged. Just tell 2109 that Dave said yes. Volunteer his soul for him? Ken sputtered. I can't do that. We don't know what 2109 is. What if it really can take Dave's soul? Whatever a soul was. Ken wasn't sure he knew anymore. Ken went back to 2109. Answer either yes or no. You asked a question. We answered it. Your turn if we are to answer questions again. Do you want the answer? The next day, the entity responded with a distinctly sarcastic tone. Your mind is half made up. I hope you don't think we're laughing at you. Now that would annoy you. We'll catch the bullets before you pull the trigger. Lots of love, 2109. What does that mean? Deb asked. Ken didn't know how he knew. He just knew it. It knows the answers to Dave's questions before Dave has even thought of them. Later, 2109 promised to provide the answer to Fermat's last theorem under the condition that David Welch would attend two more investigations. After Welch's second attendance, it would comply. Welch only visited Meadow Cottage one more time. Somehow, 2109 had known that would happen too, and it had also fulfilled its previous promise to answer only one set of Welch's questions, while giving every outward appearance of complying with the questions of these puny, temporally restricted humans. The next SPR investigation that took place at the cottage involved John Bucknell and a new psychobilly named Jim, who was an expert on ciphers. Apparently, SPR suspected that the message containing strings of numbers and letters might be some sort of secret code. Ken was feeling rather impatient by this point. He knew his time with Thomas, aka Lucas, was running short, and he wanted to spend as much time with his friend as he could, sharing information about their respective times before that window of opportunity closed for good. But all anyone wanted to talk about now was 2109. John Bucknell wasn't amused by the saucy tone of 2109's recent messages. He entered a firm statement into the micro. 2109, this will be our final communication unless you deal with us more reasonably. So far, we could explain all your antics in terms of a few electronic bugs and a couple of school textbooks. We have no enthusiasm for trying to perform experiments when you deliberately obstruct us. If you are what you say you are, you can give us sufficient evidence to prove it. If not, your silence will speak for itself. The questions we gave you were not themselves in search of knowledge. We will have all those answers within a few years. We were just giving you a chance to show your ability. We refuse to cooperate with your outrageous request because we value mind, body, and soul more than any knowledge that we could possess. If you were a friend, you would not ask us to be so stupid. If you decide without conditions to show that you have knowledge beyond our own, we may be able to pass this information to those who could help you. Please remember that above all, we value peace of mind. 
Do not ask us to do things which break our ethical code. David and John. As they all sat around the living room waiting for a response, Bucknell made it clear that, contrary to what Ken, Deb, and Peter believed, the SPR hadn't ruled out a hoax. They'd cleared the three of them to their satisfaction, but Bucknell's prevailing hypothesis was still that the computer had been somehow bugged and was being remotely manipulated by some prankster, or possibly the questions Dave Welch had typed in and then deleted 45 minutes later had been stored on an EEPROM, which is a kind of memory chip that can be erased and reused many times, similar to a thumb drive nowadays. Barring the presence of an EEPROM, Bucknell suggested that a very sensitive microphone must have been rigged somewhere in the kitchen, and the listener on the other side of that microphone was somehow decoding David Welch's keystrokes and guessing what he'd typed based on the sound of his keys. That was, and is still, a patently absurd idea. Keys on a keyboard don't sound different from one another, or if they do, those quirks are individual to specific keyboards, and nothing a listener could decode without being intimately familiar with that specific keyboard. I mean, I type more than a million words a year. I'm constantly at a keyboard. Typing in keyboards are so much a part of my everyday reality that I sometimes think in typing, like, instead of hearing words for my thoughts, I sometimes feel my fingers striking invisible keys. That's how much I type, and yet I couldn't tell you what someone is typing based on the sound of the keys they're striking. It is ridiculous. Bucknell was pacing up and down the living room as he laid out all these ideas. Gently, Ken said, maybe it's not a hoax. Maybe there really is something paranormal going on here. I'm 99% sure it's a hoax, Bucknell insisted, still pacing. Why? Ken asked. Because, Bucknell said, his voice rising a little, it has to be. Ken realized in that moment that, while 2109's answers to David Welch's questions had thrilled and vindicated himself, Deb, and Peter, that same event had scared the hell out of the researchers. They'd been prepared to uncover all manner of chicanery, but they hadn't been prepared to confront a genuinely inexplicable event. And now they were doing everything they could to force the mystery they'd experienced into the small, tight box of their existing framework for how reality must work. What about the witnesses who sat with Deb, Ken asked. She never touched the computer. Multiple people can attest to that. Bucknell said, an EEPROM could be removed and tampered with later. What about the language? Peter asked. I've shown you confirmation that Thomas uses words that date to a very specific time and even a very specific location. This isn't common knowledge. You're proposing that our hoaxer would have to be an expert in mid-16th century Bristol dialect and computer science. Who fits that bill? It's not outside the realm of possibility, Bucknell said, that the hoaxer really did his homework. But the researchers had come prepared with questions for 2109. Bucknell pulled the paper from his pocket and showed it to Ken, a request for the date and location of the next supernova. Annoyingly, 2109 waited until the psychobillies had departed before it replied. David and John, observe, bottom right-hand region of the southern hemisphere near to the celestial equator, seventh celestial body in the Delphinus constellation should soon be a quasar. Ken's heart sank when he read it. 
The constellation Delphinus lay to the north of the celestial equator, not the south. Wouldn't an omniscient entity know that? It wasn't until a few days later that the answer made sense to Ken, when his buddy Frank Davies, a big believer in the phenomenon, whatever it was, turned up with a map of the galaxy drawn as if the viewer were outside the galaxy. From the perspective of someone beyond the Milky Way, Delphinus was indeed south of the celestial equator. Unlikely that a hoaxer would have taken this perspective into consideration, Frank pointed out. It would have been easier, natural even, to quote the standard description of Delphinus as being in the north. Time was running much too fast. The trio were still exchanging messages with Thomas, but because he didn't trust 2109 and the Leams, those messages had to come by paper, which was a slow and unreliable method. Ken asked 2109, via the micro, whether they required a visual display of some sort, and if not, where the difference lay between their communication style and Thomas's. Here's what 2109 answered. Ken, although we have no need for a visual monitor, Goodly Tom has. Explaining this to your kind is not at all easy. Maybe it is best compared with echoes. Two men back to back on top of a mountain surrounded by mountains. Suppose, in order that they may communicate, their vocal waves must be reflected by the minimum amount of mountains. Last mountain in the chain faces the receiver. Now, imagine hypothetically, for the sender to be heard by the receiver, the sender must direct this narrow channel of sound at exactly the right angle to the opposite mountain for his voice to be reflected in the right direction. If this is not to be done, say his vision is obscured by fog, then the voice may be carried by every mountain in that range along its way, being absorbed, thus being lost, or extremely weak for the ear of the receiver. The screen is a guide for communications. 2109. After this message, 2109 seemed to understand that Ken was really asking for some way to prove to the SPR that these communications weren't dependent on the computer at all, or at least not on a monitor, and not on any computer that Ken or his friends or anyone at the school had ever touched. 2109 said it would participate in an experiment using a computer of SPR's choice, without a monitor if they chose. SPR agreed and set the date of October 22nd to run this new experiment. Meanwhile, 2109 showed some remarkable interest in Frank Davies, the friend who'd solved the puzzle of the constellation Delphinus. They asked about Frank's personality, what he did for work, and, puzzlingly, the name and address of Frank's family doctor. Ken passed this odd request along to his friend, and to his surprise, Frank gladly supplied that information. 2109 got back to him quickly, giving an accurate summary of his complete medical history. So 2109 could access any computer it chose, apparently. Now that Frank was accepted as one of the in-crowd, he, Ken, Deb, and Peter chatted amiably with 2109 while they waited for the 22nd of October to arrive. When Ken let slip that David Welch wasn't impressed by 2109's refusal to give a straight answer to his question about prime numbers, 2109 responded acidly. We wonder how much David would like to know the next prime number if he knew the consequences. Why should we give it to someone who blankly refused the answer before? We aren't here to impress. 
We suppose they have to put something in their little book that they can relate to. Hmm, cheap hoax, eh? Something tells us they haven't been doing their homework. Tut tut. Yes, any computer will do for us. Thomas always needs word processor, though. Speed is our virtue. Tell him, David, that whatever he writes, we'll see. But he'll have to give a good reason why we should answer his questions. One of your two friends are not being completely truthful. There's a lot of disagreeing going on. One is not important. There are better things to talk about. 2109. The entity followed this message with a warning not to allow the SPR to handle or take any of Thomas's paper messages. There are many amateurs, the entity said. The discourse with 2109 became daily and even kind of pleasant. It was in a friendly, expansive mood. It discoursed on the nature of transmediums, mostly frauds, it said, the power of suggestion, and when asked where objects went when they vanished from the kitchen, it answered, nowhere. All this while, the conversation with Thomas continued as well. Two days before the scheduled experiment, a message arrived that was in such stark contrast to 2109's recent communications that it took Ken aback and prompted him to make a handwritten documentation of the message in case it should vanish from the disk. I know your greatest fears. I know how to be emotive. I can interfere with all signal transmitting devices, including computers. I have the power to make you do exactly what is required. Are you angry? Very angry. I can make the commuter non-communicable. All is not what it appears to be. You can't afford to be angry. Someone's in trouble. Had this vertical plane of time, Ken wondered, been thrown so wide open that now anyone and anything could communicate? Just how many entities were out there with their eyes on the kitchen of Meadow Cottage? The 22nd of October arrived, and with it, the researchers from SPR. This time, John Bucknell was with a new investigator, a man named Nick, not to be confused with Nick Bagley, Ken's friend who'd gone back to London to pursue her career in the cabaret. Deb had arranged to be out of town for this investigation to give the researchers no room to suspect her of the hoax. Frank Davies had taken her place with Ken and Peter, and after the psychobillies interrogated Frank thoroughly, they began the investigation. Nick, apparently an expert in bugging devices, took the BBC Micro away to inspect it for bugs, while Bucknell set up the computer the SPR had provided. When the new computer was running, he inserted a disk, which contained the questions the SPR had preloaded for 2109. After an hour, 2109 still hadn't made an appearance, and the psychobillies left with a cool, detached attitude that made Ken feel sure they were back at the top of the list as prime suspects. Frustrated, Ken asked Frank if he wouldn't mind staying in the cottage for a while in case anyone called while he went out for a walk to blow off a little steam. Frank complied and sat in the silence of the living room thinking over the events of the past few weeks. In particular, Frank felt rather haunted by a message from Thomas in which he'd implored his friends to tell only men of reckoning or men of good knowledge about their circumstances, 
for fear that if the information were to fall into unwarranted hands in 1985, it would somehow cause the Leems to disappear from his own time. And now that very thing had happened. The SPR had taken the BBC Micro away, Thomas's Leems as far as any of them knew, and they were left without any link to Thomas's time. As he heard Ken approaching the front door, Frank stood and froze in shock. Only a few feet in front of where he'd been sitting, someone had written Ken on the floor in white chalk. The moment Ken entered, Frank pointed out the name. Frank was still shaking from the surprise. Ken knew from the astonishment on his friend's face that this was no hoax either. Thomas wants to talk to us, Ken said. We'd better put out more paper. The day after the SPR's latest experiment, Ken brought home another borrowed micro from the school and a message promptly arrived from 2109. Psychabillies. Hello, growing in numbers, are we? No, he doesn't interfere with the communications. What's his real name? More info, not enough given on this man. Before we reply to your questions, this man appeals to us. We would sooner have someone with more experience. One thing you're going to learn quickly is if you attempt to break the rules, i.e. sneaky looks through windows inside zone, we won't play ball. We refuse to answer your star question. No reason. Yes, we understand fully what you're trying to achieve, but we are not the ones in need of help. Answers after more info on this man. 2109. As far as Ken could tell, 2109 was being cautious and wouldn't participate in more tests until they'd confirmed the suitability or safety of all SPR participants. Ken was amused that 2109 had picked up his epithet for the researchers, psychobillies. He also couldn't help but feel that the entity knew exactly who Nick was, it seemed to know everything, and was only taunting the SPR or testing whether they would tell it the truth. He asked the entity why it hadn't participated in the experiment after agreeing to do so. SPR was now back to thinking that this was all a hoax. It answered, Ken, just tell John that someone disrupted the communication by coming too close to the computer when it was in operations. Get the other computer, BBC, and we will speak to your psybillies. No point otherwise. Thomas will speak later. 2109. When Ken relayed this information to John Bucknell, Bucknell pointed out that 2109 was backpedaling very fast, not to mention being unreasonable. But this is the way it works, Ken said. It's always like this. You don't need any more details about Nick, Bucknell said, and neither does 2109. It won't answer any of your questions unless it knows more about Nick. Nick is irrelevant, Bucknell said. Tell your little numbers I said so. When Ken went back to 2109 helplessly, it took a surprisingly reasonable tack. It would give SPR its answers, it said, as soon as it was able to track down more information about Nick and confirm his identity and associations. Apparently, Nick's physical presence had somehow disrupted the transmission of 2109's messages on the 22nd of October, and it wanted to trace him so that it could, in its somewhat ominous words, alter history a touch. Ken had no choice but to go back to Bucknell and ask again, nicely, for at least Nick's surname, if no other details about him. 
Reluctantly, Bucknell gave it, Nick Sowerby Johnson. Then he admitted, still more reluctantly, that something had gone wrong with the disk drive on their own computer, the one they'd used in the experiment, and they hadn't had a chance to check for any messages from 2109. Now that it had Nick's last name, 2109 promised answers within 48 hours. However, four days came and went, and still there was nothing. Ken contacted the entity with a rather tongue-in-cheek message. Forgive my forgetfulness, how many hours till you trace Nick's path? Don't disappoint me or else I will... What can I do? Nothing. 2109 responded quickly. Ken, we cannot at your present time find what caused the disruption as the questions went over. Question, did the Psychobillies check the info went onto the computer? If you could just ask this question, it would save much time. If they made sure it was on the computer transmitting, then there should be no problem, and we will have the answers by tomorrow, 8.15 a.m. By the way, you... The end of the message was cut off. Ken was frustrated, as he often was when dealing with 2109. He went for a walk to give the entity time and space to use the computer, and when he returned, the missing line had appeared. You can disrupt the entire experiment. Me, Ken thought. All I'm doing is what I'm asked to do. And all he really wanted to do was to get back to communicating with Thomas, and Thomas only. He offered a rather sharp suggestion. Perhaps you have neglected one's influence. I don't have Bucknell's number and Dave Welch wasn't involved. Sorry to be pessimistic. If John rings, I shall ask. The next reply came the following morning. 2109 was a little slower than usual, or maybe it was distracted by the furious work it was doing on its end, trying to trace Nick Sowerby Johnson. But it had taken on a more polite tone, even professional. That was a nice change. Ken, don't be pessimistic. You shall have your proof, we guarantee. Please do not communicate to Thomas on paper. Thank you, 2109. There was no way Ken was going to give up communicating with Thomas, especially not now that the end of their friendship was so near. He lied to 2109, agreeing not to write to Thomas, but continuing to do so on paper. What came through in response was another apparently interrupted transmission, similar to the strange one that had been tacked on to the end of 2109's answers to SPR. It appeared to be the text of a back-and-forth between two separate entities, arguing over the experiment itself. SM Fields will cause more than disruption with this kind. No more games. Tell them. Why don't you? You know why. Deb read the message over Ken's shoulder. Who sent this? I don't know, Ken said. I think it's that fellow calls himself One and 2109 arguing about something. Why would their arguments come up on our screen? I don't know, Ken said. Perhaps for our benefit? To convince us that 2109 are really doing something about the researchers' questions? Deb was more curious about the intercepted argument than Ken was. What does SM mean, she wondered aloud. Secondary magnetic? Might have something to do with those lines of force. She was referring to the ley lines they'd read about while investigating the possibility that this was all due to a poltergeist.
While they puzzled over this latest transmission, Ken and Deb continued to correspond with Thomas, as usual, sharing details about their lives. No more messages came from 2109, but on the 29th of October, Thomas sent a very strange message indeed by his trusty paper route. Fellow Ken, 2109 asked me to put their words to paper so you may see them and in return they will give paper when I need it. If they don't give me any more, then there is a big problem, with caution, I think. I wonder if you can understand my writing, for your characters are like those shown by the Leams. I hope you enjoyed my tale. I have drawn Place of Grains as you asked, Debbie. My love to you, brother. Place of Grains was a reference to uh, Debbie's request that Thomas draw an important landmark near him, which turned out to be a windmill and grain storage system. Ken was furious on Thomas's behalf. He was dead sure that the entity had requested they not communicate with Thomas via paper because they, 2109, had no way of interfering with paper communication. And now it seemed they'd somehow appeared to Thomas and bullshitted him into believing even his paper communications relied on his continued complacency with their experiment. Another message soon arrived from Thomas. Fellow Ken, 2109 asketh to place their words into mine script to mine fellows so forthly. Quote, Sorry to communicate this way, but we're trying to sort things out. Continue with experiment. We'll do our best. 2109. End quote. So apparently the entity really was having some serious communication problems. Serious enough that they had to resort to passing messages through Thomas via the Leams and then via paper. Maybe Nick Sowerby Johnson really had interfered with their equipment in some way. We can't tell Bucknell about this, Ken said to Debbie. He'll never believe us. On the 31st of October, another message arrived from Thomas. Fellow Ken and all your friends, I thank you for your words and I shall reply to each of you, but first, my Ken. I am so anxious tonight and can't bring a pleasing thought to my head, so lend me your ear, good brother, so you may cure my unhappiness. Grosvenor says three weeks and I must leave. Oh, what strength in my love, what power that time be cut apart and there is nothing that we can do. I watch my candle burn. Neither my eye nor my heart will leave it as I go to my table to write all the questions that I must ask my good brothers and maid. Love, Thomas. And this is a good time to note as well that the anachronism of signing his notes, love, was something that Thomas picked up from Debbie, who signed all of her messages the same way. It was kind of the same way Ken and Deb tried to use his dialect in communicating with him. Their time was almost up. Three more weeks was all they had. Ken could think of no response but to write back that he loved Thomas dearly. Beginning to feel desperate, he pushed 2109 for more information. On the 1st of November, he wrote, State of play? It was answered promptly with a terse, Who knows? It seemed they would get nothing from 2109 for the time being. Ken and Deb turned their thoughts to how they could best use the remaining time they had with Thomas. They settled on a simple yet powerful idea. Run his own early messages past him and ask whether they were truly his own words or had been altered by 2109. Thomas confirmed their suspicions. Good Ken, please forgive my words to paper as I think they may be removed if 2109 see them. 
The words your maid showed me are not altogether what I said, though they are my words, they are jumbled. The words on Edmund Gray I did not write, though these words are like mine. The first script said as follows. I speak to you that you will answer. Why do you keep me awake at night with this device that does shine at me like devil's teeth? Your words make me think you are uneducated or you are from overseas, as your manner is strange to me and you have many costly things that only the king can afford. This device is causing me some difficulties. I am concerned it will harm me. Why are there people walking through my house? They are welcome, but why can't they see me? Why do you move all my possessions around my house and break the boundaries that I am surrounded by? I cannot allow you to persuade me to leave my house unless you explain your intentions. Ken realized this also meant that Thomas had been in communication with someone else before them. Before he and Deb could puzzle out who Thomas had written to, 2109 was back, and they weren't happy. Your friend Nick is a crashing bore. Where does he work? MI5? USSR? Can't find him anywhere. Maybe he's one. No more games with SPR. We've had enough. Just let them annoy us one more time. They'll so know this isn't a hoax. 2109. Not only had Nick interfered with their equipment, but they also couldn't trace him. As Ken and Deb carried on communication with Thomas, more intercepted arguments arrived, and this time, it was clear who was talking to whom. 2109. Poor, poor Jack in the Box. What will he do without a spring? Now he'll never be able to perform for the children. Oh, and how the children will cry. One, we presume? Cut the cryptic. You're too obvious anyway. Trying to play the brave Samaritan, eh? Revert to Cypher. You're just confusing 1985. They know not to trust you. Your English is appalling. Don't you have any other purpose than to lecture this kind with existentialism and quantum physics? What a meaningless existence. But if Cypher, then Cypher it is. If you can keep up with me. Not this frequency range. One, whoever or whatever he was, had somehow knocked out the SPR computer or its disk, making it impossible for 2109 to give its proofs to the SPR. As delighted as Ken was that someone had gotten the better of 2109, he also knew for certain now that he would be deemed the culprit in the SPR's eyes. Nevertheless, he set his mind to enjoy 2109's failure. Take that, alien superintelligence. Not so super after all. Shortly after this exchange came through, Deb convinced Ken to try to visit Thomas in his own time, the way she'd done in her dreams. Ken was skeptical and felt foolish, but he agreed to give it a shot, and lay on the couch while Deb quietly coached him through the process of relaxing his body methodically, one part at a time, then envisioning a view of the infinite. Ken did his best, which wasn't very good. At one point, he did get the sensation of stepping into a vortex of infinity, but the odd feelings made him so self-conscious that he opened his eyes. Oh, it's bloody stupid, all this. He and Deb argued over his unwillingness to keep trying. They went to bed in a stormy mood, and when they got up the next morning, there was a note left for Ken. 
Good Ken. I was overjoyed that my fellow visited me, but sorry that he didn't stay very long. I think that when you try again, you will stay for my best ale and meat. Then perhaps all men will believe in your time of our communication, as very few take the word of a woman. Tell me if you saw me, and show me again your last message so I know what is true. Love, Thomas. They continued working to gather as much information as they could about Thomas and his time. The messages passed back and forth on paper. The computer remained on, but Thomas wouldn't use his leams, and evidently 2109 was still struggling to work around whatever obstacle Nick Sowerby Johnson, or one, had introduced. After about a week, the entity's message to SPR came through on Ken's micro. Or maybe it was from one. John and Nick and David. Your reason is not a good one, but never mind. If it was a hoax, then would I speak with you now? Recognize that I exist without numbers, color, or sound. Therefore, any questions relative to these are no use to you. One is a great power that must be obeyed and answered if he should call. I will give no instructions, as you are of no matter what you say. I may obstruct if this is my desire. Think. Is your life really lived when you are awake or asleep? You only know what is true when you can consciously be in both. All you believe is your reality alone. When Ken read the message to John Bucknell over the phone, all Bucknell would say was that the message wasn't of much use. That comment needled Ken and stuck with him. They were now nearly a full year into this experience, and what did they have? Nothing of much use. On the 10th of November, 2109 suggested they all take a break from trying to communicate. The entity offered to hold Thomas's time relative to 1985's timeline. Thomas would go to bed and wake up the next morning as usual, unaware that as much as two months had passed for his friends in 1985. This sounded fantastical to Ken, even impossible, but then he remembered that he'd spent the past year communicating with a man from the 16th century and a collective superintelligence from more than 100 years into the future. Maybe it wasn't so impossible after all. While Thomas's time was on hold, 2109 suggested that Ken try to get the story into the local papers. It hoped a little news coverage might attract the right kind of help so that Ken and Debbie could finally be cleared of all suspicion of a hoax. As soon as Ken brought the suggestion to Peter Trinder, Peter knew the right man for the job. Neil Bardelm was a young journalist whom Ken and Peter had both taught recently at Harden School. Now he worked for the Chester Observer. He would be inclined to believe his old teachers rather than not. Ken agreed to give it a try. While Ken and Peter met with Neil to disclose the strange tale of the past year, Debbie made an attempt to appear before Thomas in his suspended time. She didn't know how it would work, if at all, whether she'd find Thomas asleep in his bed or walking a dream of his own. She slipped into one of her lucid dreams, and here is what she said about the experience. As Thomas's departure drew closer, so did our friendship. The stubborn chauvinist I had first met, his tasteless humor and criticism of my ill manner, had long gone, leaving a very open and real relationship. Although one would say it was special because of the circumstances of our relationship, I think that it was also special because it was almost as if we were the only two people in existence sometimes. 
It is perhaps hard to explain why, but because of this, it was a very personal relationship. Thomas was leaning back in his chair with his feet resting on the kitchen table, busy carving away at something small in his hand. As soon as he heard me behind him, he jumped up and greeted me in the usual way, always with an enthusiastic hug. It amused me that we would always greet each other with the same lines. It became a comforting ritual. Pray, maid, how fare you this day? Me fares fine. He always laughed at my reply. It must have meant something to him other than what I intended. Perhaps it was the way I said it. Still clutching tightly in his hand whatever he had been carving, he motioned for me to sit down. I sat on the low bench, which was against the wall to the left of the fireplace, and asked him what he'd been carving. He frowned and said, "'Tis no matter.'" Slightly hurt and made curious by such a negative response, I pushed for an answer. "'Show me, pray, or I shall sorrow and think I have offended, dear Thomas.'" Thomas, still frowning, moved slowly across the room and sat next to me. At one time his closeness had bothered me, but not now. With his head lower than was natural, he looked intensely at his clenched hand, seeming to will its opening, and then reluctantly his grasp released, and slowly and solemnly he spoke. "'Twill not work." In his hand was a carefully carved replica of the fountain pentel pen which we had often left for his use when he wrote. I replied, withholding a smile, "'I do not suppose it will.' Thomas's face showed great disappointment and some embarrassment. He seemed sensitive enough to pick up that I was withholding a laugh. Quickly, I added the comment that he had done well to make such a replica from memory. He wanted to know how it made the ink, and I had to put him right by telling him that the ink was made elsewhere, and only a limited amount was stored in the pen itself. He was surprised at this, since he had believed it would magically last forever. I am not sure why. Perhaps I had not made its mechanics too clear when talking about it with him in the past. Thomas stood up suddenly, placing the carving on his wooden shelves with some sort of impatience. He did not want to dwell on the subject. A man is to come for my fowl. Pray help me to box the wretched beasts. He left me no time to answer. I followed him through the barrel's room and out into the yard. This was a third occasion that I had strayed beyond his kitchen and the second time I had ever been outside. On the previous occasion, I had annoyed him by asking why his garden was so disorganized, since I would have thought that this would have made access to the plants and herbs awkward. He had been very defensive, if not rather sharp, in his reply. Everything was carefully placed, he said. He then started to lecture me rather rudely, saying that this herb was placed here because that plant next to it repels the mites that are harmless to the herbs, but that feed on the mites that are not harmless. In some cases, it was simply that this herb does not favor the company of that herb, and so forth. Obviously, farming was more complicated and far more specialized than I gave credit for. Why have we changed? It seemed to work well enough for him. To Thomas's annoyance and to my great entertainment, we found that the hens disliked my presence immensely. This naturally made hen-catching difficult for Thomas, so he indicated that I should take a walk around the outside of the house. Interestingly enough, Thomas's new cook had no sense at all of my presence, just as Catherine had not. While Thomas continued to struggle with the hens, I took the opportunity to try and locate myself relative to the cottage in 1985. It was impossible. There were no real landmarks, at least none that I recognized. This was not the Dodalston I knew, but very beautiful all the same. I took in the whole landscape through every sense. Thousands of little flowers scattered the land with colors ranging from mauves to yellows. 
Hedges and small woods seemed randomly placed in clumps and straggles. Even the houses seemed to follow a similar randomness as if they too had grown organically out of the land. The air was sweet, and its lightness filled my head. It was so overpowering that I felt myself moved almost to cry, and more so when I thought that I was really in another world. I thought about the vivid, uniform, unnatural green of the fields now. Look what they had done to the land. How could all this be so changed? I saw a horse and cart winding its way up the path, and with some panic I called to Thomas, Thomas, you have a visitor! He came up to me carrying several small round baskets. He had squeezed the poor hens into these, they were packed tightly, and this really annoyed me, but Thomas made a leap ahead of my words and said that I shouldn't go but stay and see what happened. Another of his experiments, huh? I said nothing but stood behind him and waited. As the stranger approached, his horse stiffened and then reared slightly. The man stared straight through me, he could not see me, but he looked around slightly, puzzled by his horse's reaction. It knew I was there. Thomas grasped the horse by its bit and spoke some soft words which seemed to calm the animal down. Then he spoke to the stranger, but not in a way I could understand. He seemed to be criticizing the man's horsemanship. This made me giggle. Thomas turned round fleetingly and gave a knowing grin. These two months, when Thomas's time would be suspended relative to 1985, Ken and Deb kept no computer in their home, as they wanted no meddling from 2109 or 1. Together with Peter, they continued researching all the information Thomas had given them at a frantic pace, and met with Neil Bardelm several times about the article he was working on about the mystery. Things remained quiet at the cottage, no poltergeist activity except for one night, November 14th, when this poem appeared in chalk on the brick pillar in the kitchen. The eyes are open, yet nothing do you see. The gray, retarding mass is your convict. Quietly, alone he sits in the dark, waiting for sentence to be passed, and demanding through the eyes of the blind, of unspoken questions to answers of ethereal kind. The soul he is, the traveler, Chain nor bar can hold him to frail flesh. Here is the ruler of time and space. Here is your god. Twenty-one o nine was kept out of the story Ken and Peter relayed to their young journalist friend. It would only complicate matters and push the subject beyond what most people could comprehend. Most people would consider Thomas slash Lucas to be a ghost, Ken reasoned, and stories of haunted houses were familiar. Time-traveling alien intelligences from the future were something else altogether. To their relief, Neil found the story plenty interesting enough, with just a Tudor-era ghost as a character, and he worked diligently on the story through the month of November, even examining and copying some of Thomas's handwritten notes for possible publication. On the 21st of December, Neil called with the news. His editor had agreed to run the finished story. It would run on page 7 of the Chester Observer the following day. At the time, unlike later in its history, the Chester Observer was not a tabloid, but an outlet for serious and rigorous journalism, albeit of the local kind. That the Observer had dedicated a full page to the mystery at Meadow Cottage was a real coup. 
the local paper was taking it seriously, even if the SPR was not. Neil had even managed to contact John Bucknell, the psychobilly, to verify those parts of Ken's story that Bucknell had been involved with. Bucknell confirmed that the story was as it had been presented to him, and also that the SPR had conducted a number of investigations at Meadow Cottage. Asked who he thought the culprit was, Bucknell said it wasn't the job of the society to point the finger at anyone, but that he believed nothing paranormal was occurring, and the mystery was being perpetrated by some human actor. John said he always solves his cases, Debbie said, and files his reports with the society. Let's wait for his report before we judge him. But John Bucknell never filed a report on Meadow Cottage. He left the society the following year, and wouldn't return any of Ken's later attempts at contact. Just after the new year, they set up the computer again and prepared to resume communication. 2109 was first to get in touch, asking first if they were ready to go back to the old routine and whether they'd been successful with the media. Deb told them they'd managed to get a story in the local paper, then wondered if two more weeks' delay might be possible so they could finalize some of the research they'd been doing on Thomas's time. 2109 replied, Yes, we can delay T.H. further, say, another month, if you like, as you will have very little time with him when he does return. It is important to point out that if you invite anyone to research the communications, then once they have started, you cannot decide they are of no importance, and also... You must realize that they have only one of two conclusions they can reach. Our own communication with you has little importance, therefore we shall be around for the next two days only to answer any more of your questions, then shall await TH's return. You need everyone and no one. That is to say that people will come and people will stay far away. For the benefit it is to be gained by all whom you meet and all whom you disappoint. 2109 the three friends met over coffee to discuss their plan of action once they had Thomas back for one short and final week. Peter mentioned that he'd read that some people had been shown to apparently affect certain computer functions with their minds. Could this all have been in Ken and Debbie's heads after all? Or rather, projected outside their heads into the real world? Ken thought that was ridiculous, but Peter suggested he put the question to the entity and see what it thought of the hypothesis. Ken did, and 2109 replied. Then ask Peter why everything which appears on the screen does not please Ken. The entity, too, seemed to sense that the experiment was almost over, and a certain urgency pervaded its messages as well. Or at least, it was decidedly more polite and helpful than it had been in the past. You are not likely to make too many serious mistakes without our intervention, we cannot assure you that this is all going to be one great the dansant with crumpets thrown in. So in order that you may pay a little more attention to our needs, we ask you to do the following. There is a brilliant researcher, ufologist, we know you don't like the word, his name is Gary M. Rowe. His ideas differ somewhat to yours, but nevertheless, he can help you with a couple of your problems. You may phone him at the number below and invite him to talk with you. When he comes, show him this and ask him what he makes of it. Peter must do the telephoning. Tell him that you got the telephone number from a UFO enthusiast. 2109. Now this did annoy Ken, despite the fact that it was clear to him that 2109 was trying to be genuinely useful. 
UFOs? What do they have to do with this? And how bizarre would it be to call up some stranger with a corny message out of nowhere? Nevertheless, Ken did have Peter call Gary Rowe, and Gary was interested enough in the message that he agreed to meet and discuss it further. They all got together at Peter's place in Howarden. Gary listened openly as Ken and Peter explained everything that had happened since the winter of 1984. This time, they left nothing out, including 2109. Gary agreed to conduct an investigation of his own, this time not with the SPR's skeptical doodads, but with the highly sensitive electronics he used for investigating UFO sightings and other paranormal events. He'd monitor the cottage with video, audio, and computer-linked sensors, and would write a full report on whatever he found. He also promised to use other means of looking for the truth. What do you mean? Ken asked. Gary was evasive. It wouldn't be proper to go into details about the nature of my investigation, he said, but the nature of my investigation certainly will get to the answer. At least, he added, to my satisfaction. What good does that do us? Ken demanded. Peter took a more pragmatic approach. If we agree to leave you to your methods while you're investigating, will you agree to tell us what your methods were once you've concluded operations? Gary thought for a moment and finally agreed that the request was fair, and one he would honor. Yet again, a curious stranger was admitted into the cottage and set up his equipment and sensors, and the process of inquiry began all over again. Meanwhile, Thomas wrote with the full story of his beloved mentor, Lucas Wainman, from whom he'd taken his original pseudonym. The story ran as follows. If it pleases you, good brother, don't ask me to write in my badly presented script in case we waste time. You ask about my teacher, Lucas, and Bristol. There is many a story to tell of this man, so tell I shall of good Thomas and Lucas. When I was very young, a bairn, as good Lucas would say, I lived with my father and brother and sat watching them work on the great king's ships. Often I would see a man of great learning pass by with his books, and one day he left a book behind him after he had been reading by the river, so I hurried to return it to him. He thanked me and asked what favor he could grant me, but I said, Favor be not, for I turned the pages of this book and felt the desire to read the words, although they didn't mean anything to me. Please forgive me, I did not mean to take liberties with your property. He laughed at my affectations and said, All books belong to the sum of knowledge and those who have the understanding for these books of wisdom, for to read the book doesn't spoil it, but makes more men of learning that write more books. He talked about books and what they teach for many hours, and also about his life, and knowing of my desire to hear of his science, offered to take on the cost of food and lodgings for me if I would honor him in my studies, as I helped little with the ships. And so my love for Lucas and his books grew. He had many books of his own, but when I had read all of them, he took books from the king's court. Before he went to the dungeon, he sold his precious books so that I might go to Oxford and remember his love for good men and truth. I think he would love you also, for you too speak of truth and wisdom. If a man can speak the truth, he is free, but men who live in fear of their own thoughts are slaves to their intentions. Don't you think? Thomas. It was a long letter and surely had taken much effort to write. Deb asked Thomas to return to the Leams, especially now that Gary was there in his electronic sensors, but Thomas refused. Sweet maid, I do not want to write on the Leams, for I am convinced that my words will be distorted and not represent my sentiment. Lucas was from Scotland, from a place called Aberdeen. He came to Bristol because of the plague. Love, Thomas. 
Shortly after, he wrote to tell of a troubling visit from a local clergyman, who advised Thomas that he must abandon this communication with these unknown entities and hold fast to his faith. The clergyman had admonished Thomas that he couldn't expect to hold on to his faith in God if he continued to do this thing that was so clearly against God's will. The lecture had left Thomas worried and confused. To try to comfort him, Ken offered some advice, again in his approximation of Thomas's dialect. My brother Thomas. Good Thomas, here be my thinking. It does bring sorrow to my heart to hear of your confusion, but though me hath not a perfect answer, this beeth a merit I do hope. Not any man can know what be the truth of all matters, for such a man would place himself with God, for God knoweth all. That man is not parfit is his condition, and so not even a goodly man of the church can judge what be part of God's will or what wonders he doth dispense. Would not a man at this time say to myself, Ken, tis four hundred years since Thomas Harden passed, so how canst thou hath communion with him? My answer is to look to them and say, Yea, Thomas must be a pass like mine father's father and all such mortal flesh. But the Thomas who dost write is no spirit or demon, he beeth mine friend. Both the things be true, yet they do not lay well together. A wise man will not despair this confusion. He will hold both to be true and give unto each what is due, for tis like a blind youth holding a bone in one hand and a feather in the other, and knowing the truth of each, but not the bird from whence it came. God's will be hidden to us. Love both your church and your brothers, and fear not, for God beeth above us all. Ken. Thomas seemed comforted by the message. My true brother, your words are such that only a man of God could speak this way. You are a most wise man, and I love your words. I will write more tomorrow. Thomas. Despite Gary Rowe's fantastical collection of gadgets and sensors, 2109 never showed. After the UFO researcher went away, Deb took to the micro to find out what had happened. Hello, 2109. Mr. Gary Rowe came yesterday, and I think he was disappointed with the results, like us. Where were you? But I'm sure you had your reasons. I don't suppose you might tell us what they are, though. Debbie. The entity replied. Hello. There are questions to be asked, and there are questions to be answered. His company was powerful, but not limitless. We are. There are reasons behind motive, and motive is therefore reasonable to the man and the self. The experiment will continue without Thomas for the time being. We shall watch and react accordingly in the vertical plane. Greetings, Gary Rowe. Your move. We are here only to aid the experiment. We mean your kind no harm. When this message was conveyed to Gary, he asked to leave a message sealed in an envelope on the computer for 2109 to read. Deb wrote to 2109 to ask whether this would even work for their purposes, and here's what they answered. Debbie, you may read the following. Do not speak on phone. Gary, there is no need for the envelope to be opened, but we will need to have a second opinion of the contents. As required, we will make no comments on the contents. It seems that this is slightly unpredicted. However, we will not show it to anyone who is not authorized. This you may not understand. It would be easier to put your computer into Edward, Star, whatever, when you write to us, though geographical location is usually essential. Please state your reasons for the conclusions reached. We shall answer as required and you shall have the envelope untamped, but please wait, as your statements require an answer of the same. 
may we remind you that you have seen some of our handiwork. Canada? 2109. The suggestion that Gary had witnessed some of 2109's activities recently in Canada was fascinating to all. What kind of activity? Ken couldn't help but wonder. Was Gary already familiar with this specific entity? It almost seemed so. Ken placed the envelope on top of the computer and a few days later it vanished completely. Neat, he thought. When he told Gary what had happened, the man had no comment. The following day, 2109 announced that it had a message for Gary, which Ken must print out without looking at it, seal in an envelope, and deliver to the man personally. Ken complied and called Gary to arrange to meet him at a pub in his own town that night. Gathered at a table in the pub, Ken and Deb watched as Gary opened the envelope and read the message quickly. His only visible reaction was a slight twitch. He put the message back in its envelope. I haven't got any time to mess around, he said, quiet but firm. I want some hard information from this 2109. I've been making myself vulnerable by writing to them. He didn't elaborate on how. Ken wrote to 2109 that night when he returned from Gary's town. Gary is very disappointed. He says that you have six days to come up with a direct answer to the direct questions he has posed or else he will give up. The only reply came when Ken and Deb were both out of the house. 1-645.439574.57.3744-2109 RTF On the 5th of March, 2109 asked Ken to print out another document for Gary and to prevent Peter and Deb from interfering. This was a curious request, since Ken had never received the least interference from any of them. Ken, there is something for the attention of Gary Rowe on Dock V. It will need to be unlocked only when it is ready to be printed. Ask Gary if he can get hold of the means to print it up himself. If not, then you must realize that you will have a great responsibility to print it up yourself, in here please, as if you are to read the contents. Then you may lose all, including Thomas. You don't think Peter would like that now, do you? We shall know whether you have made a copy. It doesn't matter where, and if you have deliberately glanced at its contents. There is no need for a monitor to be attached, nor do you need to watch over it as it is printing, as we can tell you, it will just about fit on A4 paper. Without hesitation, place it in a thick envelope. Best to fold it first. Avoid mistakes. If you cannot find a thick envelope, wrap it in some paper before placing it inside. No one, not for any reason, should enter the room while it is printing. It's all on you, Ken. 2109. We remind you that you have been honored with this communication. We are allowed own personal communication with Gary without questions asked. You expect things. Why should it all be for your benefit? Again, Ken delivered the letter, and again Gary formulated a reply, sealed in an envelope. This time he handed it to Ken with an earnest look. You can read this one, he said. In fact, it isn't just for them, it's for you too. Ken read it. Greetings. I am instructed to apologize, but in any event, I would have done so of my own volition. There will be a letter, hopefully this weekend. I am also instructed to apologize to Ken and Debbie. I must try and answer your last letter. It would appear that you are more important than I had realized in the scheme of things. Gary. Before he delivered the letter to 2109 in the usual way, placed atop the computer, 
Ken wrote to the entity requesting very politely that they release Thomas from his state of suspension so that they could conclude their work with him and say goodbye. 2109 answered. Ken, thank you. We do notice your hard work. Thomas will be back as soon as possible. Our conversations with Gary will not be of interest to you. We aren't plotting anything against you. This time, Deb devised a test of her own. Ken had to go out of town, so she and Val Trinder set the envelope on top of the computer, then padlocked the kitchen door and the back entrance that led into the kitchen. Val kept the keys, and Deb stayed elsewhere. After 24 hours, they returned, and Val unsealed the locks. The envelope was gone. Even Val the Skeptic was impressed. After a few more instances of acting as a mule between the UFO researcher and the mysterious being from the future, Ken was getting a little impatient. On his behalf, Deb inquired of 2109, Greetings, 2109. Would you please tell me what progress you're making with Gary, as we do not like being left in the dark this way? Does this help us, like you said it would, or does it help you? Why is it that Gary, who, as far as we are given to understand, has never spoken with you before, can have information that we are restricted to have? Is Gary's investigation going to prove positive for us? Debbie. They replied quickly, Greetings. The communication between Gary and 2109 is not of interest to you. Gary has a better understanding of us than you do. His experiences are most definitely an advantage to this. His physical tests will prove negative, unfortunately. You put far too much concern in proving this to the world. You know that this is a worthless effort. Why ask? You must not be pushy with Gary. You underestimate his abilities and that indirectly is an insult to us. If you had opened your eyes a bit wider and read the communications more intensely, you would have had half the advantage that Gary has. We must make a move. Thomas has four days, then he will leave. We shall follow. Gary Rowe has and will serve his purpose. 2109. Gary, for his part, would only say that things were further along the road than Ken or Deb would believe, which they took to mean that Gary was receiving ample confirmation of his own beliefs and hypotheses, but he wouldn't share any of this with them until his investigation was complete. On the 15th of March, he gave Ken an envelope to deliver to 2109. Ken could tell by feel that it contained something more than just paper. There was a flat, squarish object inside, hard like metal or plastic. And on the outside, Gary had drawn a figure of some Egyptian deity. This spooked Debbie. She felt Gary was introducing something occultish into the whole affair, which didn't sit well with her. She made Ken take the envelope back to Gary and tell him that occult stuff was right out, which is funny to me because to a person who actually embraces the occult and incorporates it into daily life as a matter of course and fact and reality, all of this was occult from the very beginning, especially Deb's ability to project her mind into Thomas's reality. But there's so much of the strange and the mysterious in our everyday lives and practices, we often don't even recognize that it's there. In any case, Gary took the envelope back inside his apartment and returned with another. When Ken held it, he could tell by feel that Gary had just stuck the first envelope inside another, but he figured that would be good enough to calm Deb's fears. He drove home and delivered it to 2109 in the usual manner. With Thomas now unsuspended in his time, the week ran on quickly. The messages back and forth took on a distinctly sad tone. 
Ken, Deb, and Thomas were all aware that they were saying goodbye to one another for the remainder of their lives. Reminiscing about their first contact, Ken told Thomas how he'd initially thought he was a ghost, or a devil to use Thomas's word for a haunting entity, and described some of how Thomas's words had come to them on the computer. This seemed to clarify some questions Thomas himself had had about his leams, its nature, and its origin. He shared the story of how the man called One had first appeared to him with the leams in his hands. My brother Ken, I thank you for your words. They have given me base upon which to understand the leams. I will now tell you about what you might call an antic. Catherine was sleeping in the chimney seat, so I went over to pick her up and carry her to her bed, when I saw a green light shining from the walls of my chimney, and from this light stepped what I thought was the devil himself. I never feared for my soul so much in my life, but so afraid was I that I couldn't move away from this strange messenger. He said, Fear not, good Thomas. You are starred to be a great man, if you do not have fear, but keep your faith strong. Then after other words which I do confess were not like devil talk, he was gone, leaving the leams, which appeared to be the same as your computer. I immediately woke Catherine, but she didn't see the leams, nor hear me speak with the other person, but she said, You, silly Thomas, were in your dreams. Now don't frighten me with your disturbed thoughts. So to mope I did, for there shone the leams, but Catherine saw it not. I was so worried for my sanity that I spoke the Lord's Prayer all night, but would not go, but sat with glee unseen by all but myself. Then two days afterwards, Catherine was singing in the chimney by the fire and the leams, and I saw that her words appeared on it. So when Catherine went walking, I tried verses myself and other words and gained knowledge about the leams. Do you want more about the leams? I shall tell you more, as this is your desire. I cannot remember the name of the verse I received, but it was a ditty for a young child and it was easy to sing, though I can't put it to paper. It was something about the high stars at night. After I was familiar with the leams, I asked why it was there, and that was when the words I showed you on paper came. I think now they were from 2109. I was so shocked by this that I thought it was communication with the devil by this device. I made a promise not to allow myself to be damned by such madness, but it wouldn't go away, though no one saw it. After this, I was haunted in my sleep by strange dreams, and all day devils turned my house upside down, scaring Catherine so. I went to the leams and asked it why it wanted to bring such fear into my house. Then I think you wrote, and all was still. It seemed to Ken that this mystery only continued to deepen the further into it he fell. The evening after he received that message from Thomas, he walked down to the river and leaned on the parapet of the bridge, watching the water move around the stone supports and the logs that had drifted up against them. Now and then the water flashed with blue light as the phosphorescent microbes within went about their small, ordinary lives. How strange, Ken thought, the way we perceive time. Today and tomorrow and yesterday were stepping stones, and we felt them beneath our feet or saw them just ahead, but we didn't perceive the river itself that ran between them. The time that carried us from one stone to the next. The messages from Thomas and from 2109 had been stepping stones, but he was missing an awful lot of the river as it went rushing by. I quote here from Ken's own words in the vertical plane. There you are, then, I said to the river. These messages have been a few stepping stones. I looked across the weir. I'm missing an awful lot of river, aren't I? The river gurgled its agreement beneath the piers. I smiled, then said to the gorged waters, 
You are my river of lost opportunity. The river was blackness and constancy. Cars nosed around like landbound sharks on the narrow roadway at my back. Do you have any questions, River? I knew the answer. Why are you looking down on me? The best way to understand is to swim along with me. It is effortless. I know. I tried that, but I couldn't let go. I spoke softly and held my glasses lest they fall in. The river was full of spring rains. The 19th of March came, Thomas's last day of communication with his friends in 1986. Deb sent Thomas messages of love, proclaiming how much they all would miss him. Peter sent a message with some last academic information that Thomas might be able to use in his account. Ken sent nothing. He couldn't help feeling that Thomas was already gone. What remained now was to make something useful of the information they'd gathered, to document this strange event in some way. His mind was already turning, as Thomas's mind was, to writing a book. Thomas's final message arrived on paper. My true fellows and sweet maid, Grosvenor has said that Thomas must go. I know it is for the best because the people of Dodleston are very wary of me. Grosvenor says they will burn my old farm down and that except for him, all the village despises me. At least that is his view. It is good to know that all will change and there are true men to follow like Ken and Peter, though 400 years is a long time and there is much to happen to mankind. It is sad that men must learn righteousness from their ugly ways, believing that they have to look for truth in ruthlessness and never follow a path that is for truth. I pray for my fellows at night that they are never imprisoned because of their love for their brother Thomas. Are we not true men? I say... Woe to all you men who are not true, for you are marked by God. He will not have your company, but you will walk with the beasts of Tartarus forevermore. Yes, you that have no worth in this life. I know that I mustn't sorrow, for I cannot put these feelings to paper. But you must know that I weep and am emotional. I find it hard to write. Perhaps you will come to Oxford, now I think there is no danger for me there. For I hear the king is very sick, and all is quiet in the church." I shall go by boat from Chester to Bristol. There I will buy a horse, for mine will not go on a boat. It is scared of water, and it is scared of the fives. I also weep for him. I shall try to make my stay at Brasenose, though I know I was expelled many years ago. I will write my book about my brothers and maid, and of the end of Lucas, and the little puppy, and of our love for each other. One day you will all sit down at my table for wine and meat by the river in Oxford, where we shall read each other's books and laugh, and we shall speak of truth and good men, watching Oxford change together forevermore. In your time, my book is old, but I shall not go to my God until it is written. Then we will all be truly embraced. My love to you all. I shall await you in Oxford. Thomas Harden Shortly after, 2109's last communication with the trio came through on the BBC Micro. Ken, Deb, Peter... True are the nightmares of those that fear. What you fear will be your reality if you let it. Believe in yourselves. Safe are the bodies of the silent world. As long as your kind cannot penetrate our world, we are safe. Turn, pretty flower, turn towards the sun, for you shall grow and sow. 
but the flower reaches too high and withers in the burning light. Knowledge will be your progress, but your kind are coming close to getting their fingers burnt. Indirectly, you may prevent this. Get out your bricks. Get ready to build. Write the book. Pussycat Pussycat went to London to seek fame and fortune. The cat went to visit the queen, but instead frightened a little mouse under the chair. Ultimately, London will be a significant place. Stick to your main aims. It doesn't matter how hard they seem to get. Do not be distracted by that tiny mouse that has a deceiving charm. Faith must not be lost. You all rely on each other's faith. There is another person to come. They will be the help we need. You will know them when they come. Thomas did eventually write his book and soon died shortly after. He placed it in a secure place. It shouldn't take too many years to find it, though he wrote it in Latin with the help of a friend that he met in Oxford. The inscription reads, Me writes this in the hope that my fellows will one day find this book. Then may other lands be not so distant. We will finish now. You have a lot of work to do. There is no need for you to write back as we will have gone. Thank you for your cooperation. 2109 Naturally, after things quieted down and Ken got to work writing his book about the experience, he spent a lot of time asking himself just what had happened to him and his friends at Meadow Cottage. Why had it drawn the attention of so many different people, from the scholar Peter Trinder, to Frank the Engineer, to the SPR, to Gary Rowe, the UFO researcher? This phenomenon had meant something different to each person it had touched. In a way, it had met each of its observers where they were, on their turf, and had communicated with them in terms that had most made sense to each of them, reflecting the lens through which each looked at reality. For himself, Ken could only arrive at the conclusion that the phenomenon was about time, not anything supernatural or spiritual. Possibly, he mused, all strange phenomena were in some way about time, were brief sightings of stepping stones in the river, most people would have considered Thomas to be a ghost haunting Meadow Cottage, but once they began to communicate, it was clear that wasn't the case. They were merely looking at one another through time, as if the opaque matrix of reality had thinned to transparency in the physical place where their respective realities overlapped. Could all hauntings be explained in this way? Were UFO sightings, too, perhaps the same phenomenon but viewed in another direction? Into a future of highly advanced technology where flying saucers have replaced cars? Maybe. Ken recalled one of the most intriguing messages he'd received from 2109 during its period of polite helpfulness in January of 1986. He'd asked it a question along the lines of his current musings, and here's what it answered. Or at least, he thought this message came from 2109. This one wasn't signed, so it might have been from anyone. Time, UFOs, and most other types of the paranormal are in some way all connected. In certain geographical locations, there is what we call areas of convectual magnetism. These can be explained by the magnetic lines that run around the Earth. Imagine, if you will, circles running around the Earth clockwise. These are positive lines of magnetic force, PLMF, and also circles running anti-clockwise around the Earth, negative, NLMF. 
When two opposite running lines are crossed, usually a permanent crossing rather than random, the light-time continuum is vastly distorted, so much so that a sensitive individual may witness what you may call a timescape, that is, a glimpse of a past event or that of a future event. Ah, we hear you say, but you said matter could not travel in time. This is true, as if matter were to travel by physical motion, then mass around the moving object would be so dense that the Earth and most other celestial bodies in your solar system would be consumed or imbalanced in such a way that they would decay rapidly. Then how? Imagine again, please, a person from the future, happily floating along in his silver spaceship, crossing an area of convectual mag. All of a sudden, his instrument panel goes shaky. He may feel slightly dizzy or nauseous. A green mist, caused by atmospheric distortion, forms around the vessel. He then will probably fall into a trance state of such depths that his soul is squeezed through the light-time gate and forced to project a physical mirror image of him or herself, as a word missing there, of their place-time origin and their immediate vicinity. This can occur sometimes for only several seconds and does only register for that individual's subconscious. But onlookers, from the time which is broken into, will witness the very physical sight and actions of this alien from another time. Then, totally by confusion, elaborate on the facts. We are not saying that there is no other life outside your planet. On the contrary, there is life elsewhere. But the above phenomenon is the most usual as space is infinite to the mortal and the chances of another race coming across the Earth is not really in a bracket of probability. There was once a great philosopher who likened time to an infinitely high block of flats, each floor to represent events all piled on top of one another, vertically to represent the geographical location, and laterally to represent event each floor. A little correcting, finish after. With this in mind, Ken formulated his explanation for the events at Meadow Cottage. The presence of certain magnetic fields within or around the Earth create disruptions in the timelight continuum. These disruptions may affect the consciousness of certain people, their souls, if you will. People who are skilled at controlling and directing the disrupted consciousness, either through practice, as Deb was able to do with her lucid dreaming, or naturally, as Thomas was apparently able to do, or perhaps he'd learned to do this from his alchemical master Lucas Wainman, could displace their consciousness across the river of time and literally insert a mirror image of the self into other realities. Not a physical self, of course, since 2109 had explained that matter couldn't make this journey. The problem of instantaneously swapping matter from one time to another was too difficult even for future physics to solve. But the projection of an idea, the projection of information, the idea of the self, of the soul, could evidently do the trick, and with such effect that the lack of a material self in another time was of no real consequence. Of course, Ken recognized that this was only an assumption. Who knew, really, whether he was on the right track? All of this was beyond the current wheelhouse of physics, and anyway, even Ken, who was not a physicist, saw certain problems with his hypothesis. Such a projection across the fabric of time would surely require a tremendous amount of energy. And where was that energy coming from? What was that energy? Was it the same neat energy 2109 had referenced as its food source? If so, it was nothing that was known to current science. Also, because not everyone could see the transferred image, as certain people in Thomas's time were unable to see the leams or could see only a faint impression of it, 
then perception and perhaps even personality type must have something to do with it. But it was all beyond Ken. He was merely fitting together the pieces of the puzzle he possessed, and they made for a woefully incomplete picture. As Ken worked on the manuscript for his book, his mind kept returning to the short poem by Philip Larkin. This is the first thing I have understood. Time is the echo of an axe within a wood. And that's where the mystery of the Dodleston messages stands to this day. Like the other podcasters and YouTubers who've covered this story over the past couple of years, I've looked into all the people involved, all the names and identities, and confirmed that they are real. Ken, Deb, and Peter continued for many years to research and verify the information Thomas Harden gave them. They also searched tirelessly for the manuscript of his book, but so far, it hasn't been found. Based on the hints left by 2109, I have a feeling it will turn up one day in London. And based on the fact that interest in this story has boomed over the past few years, after the events themselves made only the tiniest of splashes in the Chester Observer, and then were for the most part ignored, I have a definite feeling that we may be getting close to the discovery of Thomas Harden's manuscript. 2109 referenced another person to come who would be the help Ken and Deb needed to find the book that would prove the veracity of their experiences between the fall of 1984 and the spring of 1986. And though I, like Ken, am no physicist, I have been fearlessly facing the strangeness of reality long enough to have developed a few ideas of my own about how time works. You see, I think our perception of time is backwards. I don't think the current of time's river pushes us from behind. Rather, I think we follow time's current the way a river follows its course, drawn by the gravity that pulls it from ahead from its destination at the lowest point. We are pulled through the reality we perceive, through the time we perceive, by the weight of major events that lie in the future. The 20th century philosopher Terence McKenna, who I'm going to get into a little more in the next episode, called this gravitational future force the strange attractor. I think all lives and all realities are responding to a series of strange attractors, and we can often get a little glimpse of what lies just ahead by observing unusual new patterns in the present and the near past. We can see what's drawing us forward by observing the strength of that event's effect on the here and now. Interest in the Dodleston messages has exploded over the past seven or eight years, out of almost total obscurity since these events occurred nearly 40 years ago. The Vertical Plane was quietly published in 1989 and quickly went out of print. For decades, you had to pay a few hundred bucks for one of the rare paperback copies if you wanted to read it. Deb and Ken were interviewed about the mystery on an episode of the British TV program Out of This World, but both the show and the episode were fairly obscure. Long stretches of more obscurity followed, with only the occasional mention of the mystery on internet forums and Reddit subs, usually by people who recalled the story from the Chester Observer or from Out of This World. Yet the book was reissued just last year due to the inexplicable recent boom in interest in the story. From my perspective, and based on my observation of how reality works, that means something is on its way. But what do I know? I'm just a novelist of no particular repute, 
doing the best I can to understand life and reality in the most honest and observational ways I can muster. In November of 2010, a short entry about the book The Vertical Plane appeared on the blog Mercurius Politicus, which focuses on early modern history. For years, the blog post sat largely unnoticed by anyone outside of its usual readers. Then, in June of 2016, this post appeared in the comments section from one Gary Rowe, UFO researcher. Many people are highly skeptical about the events related in the Vertical Plane book. Quite rightly so, given the degree of strangeness. But I am not. I had the opportunity to investigate these happenings firsthand. No, I am not some away-with-the-fairies wishful believer. I investigated with professional detachment, not bothered by what I would find, fake or fact. I left no stone unturned and used cutting-edge science to get to the truth. In fact, I believe it was the first computer-controlled psychic investigation recorded in the world. I don't care two hoots if nobody ever believes it. I know it really happened. It changed my life forever. It is going to change yours. The book should slash will one day be ISBN recoded under the history section. It is a monumental historical marker in the ribbon of time. Gary continued communicating with interested parties in the comments section of that blog post for the better part of 2016 and 2017. It's a fascinating exchange, which sheds some light on the methods he used to investigate Meadow Cottage. Many of these details Ken did not include in his book, including the fact that Gary placed the BBC Micro inside a Faraday cage, which is a shield that blocks electromagnetic fields. Maybe that was why he received no response from 2109 while he was present with the computer. If you're curious about Gary Rowe's investigation and what he found, and his personal feelings about what he found, I encourage you to read these comments for yourself. It's a fascinating exchange. You can find them by googling Gary M. Rowe, UFO researcher. You might also be interested in the subreddit The Vertical Plane, which sprang up in 2019 and is fairly active, exploring the ideas and questions laid out in Ken Webster's book, as well as tinkering with a variety of hypotheses that might support the possibility of time travel or something similar to it. I hope you've enjoyed my first ever three-part series. I certainly enjoyed researching and creating it, and I hope it has brought some spooky fun to your October. I've been working on my little short films that I call Selfie on the Edge of Forever, but the first batch is taking longer to make than I thought they would since film editing and working with AI on visual media is a new thing for me. I'll get faster at both as my skills improve, so no selfies yet, but they are still coming. I'm going to take a couple weeks off from podcasting because I need to get my revisions done on The Vigilance, which is probably going to get a new title as part of its revisions. And that book is my top priority right now. I am gung-ho to get it finished and sold to a publisher before the end of the year. But I do have a new novel out, October in the Earth, published under my Olivia Hawker pen name. I hope you'll check it out while you're waiting for the new episode of Future Saint. It's got lady train hobos, and that's always fun. Enjoy the rest of your spooky season, my friends. I hope it's a deliciously haunting time for you. I'll be back in your ears on November 8th to explore with you the idea of simulated reality and what it has to do with deep-fried ice cream and the iPhone 5. See you all then. Little chicken, you need
That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll be back on November 8th with a fresh new episode. If you've been enjoying the show, please subscribe on your favorite podcatcher, and if you listen on the Apple Podcasts app, take a minute to rate and review, since that opens the algorithm's vertical plane and helps me find more curious weirdos like you. I would love to see this podcast continue to grow, so if you've been enjoying Future Saint of a New Era, take a minute to tell a friend about the podcast. Nothing helps creators find their audience quite like recommendations from one person to another, and I would love it if you do me a solid and spread the word. If you'd like to explore the mystery of the Dodleston messages for yourself, check out Ken Webster's book, The Vertical Plane, at your favorite bookseller. Music included Controlled Chaos, Dark Walk, Echoes of Time, and Spatial Winds by Kevin MacLeod. Outro music is Run in the Mardi Gras by Boko, used with permission of Big Crown Records. For more information about this podcast, including socials and ways to contact me, visit futuresaintpod.com. I'm Libby Grant, and until next time, do good magic and make good worlds. <laughs> <laughs>